Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. And welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So, in this week's episode, I have got the incredible Jessica Alogvon coming onto the podcast. She's a medical student, she's an author, she's currently studying an additional degree in the middle of her medical studies at Cambridge University. She is a mentor, she is an author, she's got a website, she's got a blog. She is incredible. I would bet money her career is going to absolutely soar. She will be one of our national leaders. I have no doubt about it. She's got such a lovely presence, so inspiring. She's very driven, very ambitious. And I think her skills, her story, regardless of where you are in your career, will hopefully inspire you into action. I really, really hope you enjoy this. Um, I absolutely loved it. Hey Jess, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm really good. It's it's Friday. I hate saying it, but it is busy. I've got a little bit of a headache. It's still quite early on in the day. (laughs) There's a lot going on. Yeah. (laughs) So our paths first crossed, as many paths do via Instagram. You've got a fantastic profile. And I think what I really liked about your profile is that you do share a little bit of your life, but you share your work. And I think it's really, really interesting. You're pretty accomplished um, for somebody relatively early on in their career. So would you share with our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm Jessica. I've just completed three years of medical school and I'm currently taking an optional year out to do a degree, which every medical student's given. And I've decided to do that at Cambridge and um, pursue a master's. So I'm quite interested in research. But my journey into medicine was not straightforward. It wasn't linear. I had to take a gap year before getting into med school because I didn't get in the first time round. And that was due to lots of things, but just overall a lack of guidance and knowledge about how what it takes to get into a career like medicine, which happens to be one of the most inherited careers in the world. So a lot of people who are in medicine, like my colleagues and my peers, they have parents and grandparents who are in medicine, um, or who are doctors. So I found that when I reapplied, I had to shell out quite 
a lot of money to do an interview course or to learn how to excel at the exams that you have to take to get the admissions test to get in. And luckily I was working as a healthcare assistant at that time. So I was getting frontline experience, but I was using my money to try and get into med school. And I thought, gosh, these are real barriers to people who, let's say they didn't take a gap year and didn't have a job or didn't have parents who were even from this country who were doctors, let alone, you know, could help them throughout school and getting into medical school. So it's made me a bit of a champion for widening participation. And that's, like you said, why I share my work and encourage people to just keep trying because despite what your background might be, you can do amazing things. And I think when you get into medical school, your, your background doesn't change. You're still that, you st the struggle that you went through to get into medical school, you then have the struggle of thriving at medical school. And I think a lot of students, especially black students, they, they just survive, they don't thrive. They don't feel like they can do research or they can go Cambridge or they can do an extra degree. And that's what kind of like my Instagram and social media presence mm -hmm. is for, to show people that like, actually you can make medicine what you want to make it and do lots of incredible things, regardless of how long it takes you to get there. In your experience, being a black medical student, when you say you, you can thrive, tell us a little bit about your personal experience was like. So I grew, grew up and live in London and went to school in London. So being different wasn't a thing. You know, it's so diverse. You don't feel out of place. You get into an institution like university and depending on what topic you do, you can be the only black person on the course. And I never experienced what that felt like. When I got into medical school, I still went to a medical school in London and there were very few black students in medicine. There were a few of us dotted around and obviously we were all friends. <laughs> You're black, I'm black, let's be friends. Yeah, and you'd get split up into groups and I can't explain how strange it feels to be the only one that's kind of different. Like you, you're noticeable, you know, you mess up, it's you. You do well, it's you. Like people know you, you've got the curly hair, you've got the braids today. Like they know who you are because you stand out. And I think it impacts how you navigate medical school in terms of building friendships, building relationships with people, and also how, how you excel. There's an attainment gap at medical school and in university where BME students don't do as well as their white counterparts. And especially when we get to employment as well, they haven't really built the skills for employment because maybe they were not confident enough to get internships or they weren't told about them or they weren't running in the circles that give them this information. So I'm sure you know, lots of universities have like ACSs that you know, promote business opportunities for black students, or they have, we now have ACMS, which is African Caribbean medical societies to encourage black medical students to take advantage of career opportunities like going to Cambridge for a master's or doing research. So I think when you're the odd one out, it does impact your performance and your confidence. How would you rate your confidence now though? I would rate it a lot better. I think my my biggest confidence boost was finding societies like ACS and ACMS and also being like coming into my own. I think when I started university, like many students, I was waiting for people to come up to me and be friends with me. I was waiting for people to give me opportunities. I was waiting for people to invite me out. And as the years went on, I just thought to myself, oh, this is just not helping. Like, I just need to put myself out there and get over it um, at some point. And I've not regretted it. Like, putting myself out there on, on social media was a thing I started doing really in lockdown when I started sharing more medicine, medicine content and yeah, I've not regretted it. Like it's helped me find more opportunities and meet new people. So. 
Did you become the president of one of these societies? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the HMS. And you've written a book? Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, you need to big yourself up a little bit more. When I said you need to tell people about yourself. So this is what attracted me to you. It, you've written a book. You've created an online course. You're studying. You're into research. And you share You share so much on social. You, what, you help with you people's um, applications? Yeah, so I have a mentoring scheme that I started in lockdown and it's in its second year now. So aside from all the stuff I do, I spend some time mentoring some students. So, for example, if they want me to read their personal statements, I'll review that. And if uh, interview practice, so obviously it's interview season at the moment. So I've got a couple of meetings here and there um, helping students kind of get their place at medical school. That's amazing. So actually, you can help me. I've got my own mentorship scheme. What are the benefits of mentorship? Why would you say to somebody either to come to you in your instance or for somebody like me that wants to help people like yourself to progress their careers? What's the benefits? For me, mentorship is a two-way street. I think a lot of people go to a mentor asking for a lot and thinking they don't give anything. I think I've seen it from both perspectives. So as a mentee, getting a mentor is a chance to develop a relationship with someone who is somewhere that you want to be. So they give you literally the insider tips and the real time experience of what they're doing on a day to day basis. And I really encourage people who want to go for a mentor, go for someone you want to be like. And this is not just career wise, but what are their values and principles? How do they navigate life? For example, I'm big on family, having a family, but also being an ambitious woman who wants to have in a career. So my mentors are women who are doing both. You know, they have their core values. They love their family. They want to be a mother. They want to be a wife and they want to like build a home, but they also don't want their career to fall by the wayside and they are excited to try new things. Those are the type of mentors that I'm looking for. And then as a mentor giving advice to people, I think you learn a lot about yourself and the satisfaction you get from seeing your mentees getting into the place that you once were you just feel like oh like now you're in a medical school that I'm at like you could see me around campus and we could actually be friends like you don't have to be a mentor for someone and then once they get to the place they want to be you cut it off it's a continuous thing and you learn a lot about yourself your teaching style your supportive style and your mentee might send opportunities to you and be like oh Jess you know I found this fund that funds organizations that do mentoring I think you should apply for it I've learned so much from you and you would be a really good candidate that you can help each other and you start getting a broader you have a broader scope for opportunities and that's my that's my thing boarding yourself up to as many opportunities as possible and mentoring is a perfect way to do that why would somebody that wants those things not apply so they'll see somebody like yourself on social you're doing amazing and you're saying, well, I, I can I can support you. I can review your application. And they think, no, Jess, you're too big. You're, too, you're a star. I can't talk to you. Do you ever come across that? I've, I mean, I've never had someone say it to me. But obviously, there's always those, there's a, there's a population of people that we never capture. You know, they just don't end up applying. And you get that in anything. And I think what I would say to those people is you, you have nothing to lose. Like, I'm the type of person who would apply, like, I will apply for things. I know I would I would at least try to cover most of the qualifications or the desired, you know, 
characteristics that they're looking for. But I just think this is the time, well, especially when you're younger, you've got nothing to lose you know, just apply and see where it goes. The way that my mentoring scheme works is that you need to have some clear goals. You need to understand why you want to be mentored. Like, what do you particularly need help with? Where are you thinking of applying? And I, I, I really take the time to read the people who have filled that out extensively. I mean, some people come with a few bullet points, uh, a few words, get me into med school. I tend to, (laughs) you know, my attention will be drawn to the people who have clear goals, who have said like they followed my journey and they want to do this and this. And it ends up being a long-term relationship. Like the progress with Jess alumni from last year, I still talk to them. I mean, some of them I haven't met face-to-face, but they will always be like friends to me. And hopefully we can help each other on our medical journeys. And when I'm a doctor one day, they'll be coming in as juniors and we'll still have that mentoring relationship, I think. So what particular aspect of research are you interested in? Yeah, so I'm interested in paediatric research. So I'm interested in child health, particularly mental health and neurodevelopment, which is what I'm doing at Cambridge at the moment. But I'm keeping my options quite open because I'm only halfway through med school. I have a little bit of an interest in surgery. I think I'd be interested in dabbling in that. But my main research interests are definitely on mental health and child development. So actually, Natasha Binney's been on the podcast. She did explain it to me, but I've forgotten. Could you remind our listeners on the how many years of training does it take and where are you in that journey? Okay, so with medical school, that can be anywhere between five to seven years. And I have completed three years of medical school. I'm taking a year out to do my extra degree. And then I have two more years when I return. After these two years, I'll be graduated as a doctor and then I'll be a junior doctor for two years. And then after that, I will enter a specialty if I choose to do so. So if I chose to do paediatrics, I would be training for an extra six years, but I'd be getting paid and I'd be progressing up the ranks through that. And then I'm a consultant. Just like that. (laughs) No, yeah, not just like that, but I'm very, very oversimplified. And then going back to your, so what sparked your interest in paediatrics and mental health? Oh, so honestly, this was during lockdown. So I, I'm one of those people in medical school who is pulled and pushed towards all different specialties. I can't decide whether I'm a generalist or a specialist. I know that I have research interests, but you know, my career might not take me in that direction. I'm very open and and willing to adapt. But I think when I really found out um, that I liked paediatrics was during lockdown. So I, I, as I said, I worked as a healthcare assistant. I've worked in um, paediatric A&E lots of times and I just enjoy children's company. I think they're so funny as patients. I mean, being with children all the time, (laughs) I don't know. As patients, they're quite enjoyable and the team is lovely. And also in lockdown, I was dealing with a lot of requests on Instagram and social media about help me get into medical school. Jess, I can't study. I'm finding it really hard to study online and all of these things. And I thought, wow, there's there's so much change for young people. I wonder how they're actually coping because... I mean, our parents just kind of expect us to get on with it sometimes. I I know that for my parents, they didn't have a clue what the school system was doing. So they're just like, you know, you get on with it, you do your thing. So I can imagine, you know, if, if I was in lockdown with my three younger siblings and we all had to share a computer and attend lessons, some of us would 100% be missing out. And I don't know if we'd all go, like end up going uni. So 
I just realized that it was really affecting young people. And my sister was actually part of the A-level fiasco. So she wanted to do physics and the one grade she missed was her physics grade. And I saw how this broke her, as in a lot of her self-worth was riding on that grade. She withdrew from family life. She really unhealthily studied to retake the exam in autumn, which she had to pay for herself. And luckily she got the grades, but it was at a big cost. You know, it affected, it definitely affected her mental health. And then compounded by that at the time, you couldn't go and see a GP. You couldn't get help. It was very difficult. um, And there was no system set up for mental health services. So that's been a big driving force for my research this year into looking at how family functioning and children and parents and their mental health has changed during the pandemic and what implications that has for the future and where we can kind of target interventions for these families and who was affected most. And there were also families that got better and why was that as well? So it is a pleasure to be bringing the Business of Healthcare podcast in partnership with DKMS UK. DKMS are a blood cancer charity on a mission to find a blood stem cell match for everyone who needs it. I am proud to share that I am an ambassador for DKMS UK and my particular interest in partnering with them is that as it stands, fewer than 3% of patients from a black or mixed ethnic background are on the stem cell blood registry. We need more people to sign up to the registry and more people to spread the message. So I hope you will join me in doing so. To sign up to the registry, please visit www.dkms.org.uk to get involved. It's really, really interesting. So you are studying this at Cambridge. Yes. So tell us about your Cambridge journey. (laughs) (laughs) So last year, around this time, I was toying with the idea. I was thinking, you know, we have this option to do another degree. Is it something that I really want to do? You know, it's extra money. How, How much extra money? So um, my master's actually was billed at £23,000 for the year. I didn't have that money. And luckily, I'm, I'm so grateful to say that I got scholarships and an NHS bursary to cover all of it. But at the time, I was toying with this idea, is it worth taking an extra degree for that amount of money? How was I going to fund it? You know, it's an extra year as well. Do I just want to be a doctor and get it over and done with? But I thought to myself, if I'm going to take a year out, I'm going to try and do it at a top institution and I'm going to try and do a master's. Why not? Like what, again, what have I got to lose? And if I didn't get Cambridge, it was the only course that I applied for. If I didn't get it, I would continue with medicine. That was my deal to myself. So I had a look at some of the degrees in Cambridge and I had a friend in the year above who'd done a degree at Cambridge and it was a research master's with some taught elements, but I was going through their research projects and I said, oh my gosh, this is the project for me. My supervisor was a King's medical student herself. She's a doctor of child and adolescent psychiatry. That is a, that is a topic I'm interested in pursuing. Like what better way than to get one-to-one support from someone in a field that I might be interested in and do research that is actually relevant and topical to now. So, you know, it's on COVID-19, I I can't really wait any more years. (laughs) I have to do it now. So we had a couple of Zoom interviews and we just got on like 
we really just hit it off and I was so interested in our project. I'd read her papers before as well and I'd attended a talk that she did a couple of years prior. So it just went from there and then obviously funding was my next big barrier to overcome when I got the offer. How many scholarships did you apply for? Because that's actually, that drew me to you because I was a bit like, I really want to help her. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So at the time, so basically... NHS bursary will cover the final couple of years of your medical degree. So I did apply for NHS bursary and they covered about, they covered my tuition fees, which was good, which was about half of my issue in the the beginning. But I had, you know, 10,000 to 14,000 to cover and I didn't have that in my bank account. So I got applying to scholarships and I'm I'm talking scholarships for um, for students in my borough, scholarships for students from my heritage, scholarships for for students who were medics I tried everything and I think I applied or inquired to a total of like five to six and I ended up getting three and they funny enough they all came in the same week I'd be like I'd been waiting seven months for some responses like I can't explain how stressful that period was because Cambridge is bothering you for like can you prove to us that you've got the money you're telling yourself, you know, you've applied to these scholarships, you've got to make it known to Cambridge, you've got also proved that you're, you've got an offer and you can study to these scholarships. It was just very stressful, but luckily I got three of them, two of them, uh, one of them was for medicine, one of them was the Black Heart Scholarship, which is based on your like background and heritage, and then one of them was the Elevation Foundation, which is a new new and upcoming foundation run by one of my friends Dylan who crowdfunded for his Cambridge Masters and I applied for it because I was like you know my friend's doing this foundation I need money let's <laughs> do it let's do it and then at the interview obviously had an interview with his benefactors and it was just great and they really like like what I'm doing and wanted to support. You're incredible Jess you really really are one of the things I've written down is talk us through how you prepare to pitch yourself So regardless of the opportunity, you've given us a bit of tips, but I think it's, you've managed to do, you do this over and over and over again, and you probably don't even realise you're doing it. You're a seasoned expert. (laughs) I, I honestly think it's been very subtle learning. And like you said, it's a skill that I've managed to get better and better at. I think the first time anyone ever has to sell themselves is probably for their first job or going to university. You write that personal statement and so many 18 year olds come to me and they're like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to sound cringe. I don't want to sound this. <laughs> but honestly, I think I just, I try and focus. I try and basically know what my mission is. Who am I as a person? What is my core reason or mission for doing what I do and pursuing what I want to pursue? So when I'm applying to something, I look at what they want from a candidate. You know, if I'm applying for a scholarship, they're going to want you to have a clear reason for pursuing your degree and basically a clear outcome. Who is it going to make you as a person and how is it going to contribute to the better of society? And I think being a medic is helpful because, you know, you're a medic, you're going to benefit society just by being a doctor, we'd like to think. But who are you as a person? And I think that's been a lot of development and developing my soft skills and putting myself out there. I mean, for example, having a LinkedIn profile helps you massively. A lot of people who approach me, for example, for things like podcasts or who will look at my name when they're when they see my application for a scholarship or an opportunity will Google you and LinkedIn will come up. And my LinkedIn bio is what I want people to know about me. 
my experience is what people I want people to know that I've had and I just have a core mission I have a thing that makes me get up every day in the morning aside from getting my degree being a doctor doing medicine what things do I like to do and why and I think if you can articulate that better and better over time people will get invested in who you are and your story as well absolutely so for NHS leaders that have got the influence and the resources to influence change when thinking about your experiences and the topic of diversity what do we need to be doing differently so we attract people into this sector and they stay and they don't feel like it shouldn't be a revelation that they feel like they can thrive that's just the expectation and that's the norm yeah and this is such a hard question because I think extensive work has been do- is being done on it, but I think a big problem with the NHS is its rigid structure. So, I mean, it's not easy for a medical student like myself to access an NHS leader, have a sit down conversation with them and tell them the problems that I think are happening in the NHS. That's not, in, in itself, that's not an easy line of, um, like, <laughs> line of communication. So I think, yeah, NHS, the system is rigid and the communication is poor. That is that is a a thing that we need to change. How? I really don't know. I think this (laughs) is such a hard topic to talk about because even small things like the technology, it's archaic. It's doesn't, it's not fit for purpose. People, letters are lost. Communication is lost. Emails are not sent or received. That in itself is not working. However, working in the NHS, I do get emails about, you know, BME group discussions, diversity panel meetings, open forums. It's a start, you know, it's a start of something. I think it's so hard to implement because it's such a big structure. It's so hard to implement that open forum on smaller scales. Managers all have their different managing styles. And it's a ve- it's just, it's such a hard question. I don't even know. Like structurally, it needs a restructuring, I think. So it is a big question. And thank you for not kind of shying away because I know loads of people would have gone like, Ooh. ask me a different question but I think you've given lots of food for thought and lots of those conversations are happening and I think it is I'm acting like I'm a grandma I'm not quite there (laughs) but how we say we need to engage with patients we need to we need to engage with all levels of the NHS those before coming in those one step in and all the way through and you're constantly collecting ideas, you're collecting people's experiences, and then you start, it's it's a, it's not transformational change, it's that slow burning change. Okay, agreed, agreed. So it's, yeah, it's not a big bang, and it would be, you would break the system if it was a big bang, because it is so complex. But I think that, I think your suggestions around technology, the rigid structure, basic communications, you know, is, may seem it's big it also seems quite small and obvious but you've got to start somewhere yeah I was having a discussion with a friend yesterday actually who's a final year medic and we were talking about how hard it is to affect change in medical school let alone an organization like the NHS where you have all these different trusts and all these different areas of England with different cultural like norms and different you know diverse populations and diversity levels are different depending on where you go and I think we can't assume that just because you're the only black person in a space that you feel unwelcomed I can't I can't even lie being at Cambridge I've not felt you don't belong here 
you're different. I felt very welcomed. I felt encouraged. I felt, you know, you're academically ready to be here. And my, my supervisor tells me regularly, I chose you and you're, 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 I chose you for a reason. And my group is so welcoming. So we can't assume that just because you're the only brown person in the room, you are going to be isolated. But what we can do is, yeah, collect real time information from these people. And I know in medical schools, they've started this thing called reverse mentoring, which is basically what we've been talking about, where we give recommendations and advice to professors and deans and people who are up there who can bring these ideas forward to their people on how we should be taught and how black students should be you know addressed and what's appropriate and what's what's culturally appropriate and what's not and for example Malone who who authored Mind the Gap it's a book for conditions seen on black and brown skin I mean something as small as that isn't widely implemented at med school that's caused waves you know med schools are embarrassed you know, how can this not be the norm? So I think things like that are starting to really shift the culture and, and at medical school. And then that, that change will implement the NHS. Like we're all interconnected and it's, it's super difficult to pinpoint a list of things that are going to solve all the issues. Jess, if people want to connect with you, where can they find you? Where do you hang out the most? <laughs> um, where do I hang out the most? I think, you know, I hang out the most on Instagram, <laughs> but... DMs are not really, you know, if you if to talk in a professional setting to really get a conversation going, I'm probably the best on email because then I can signpost to different parts of my website. LinkedIn, I'm also happy to answer messages and questions. I'm quite active on there when I can be, but preferably email progress with Jess at hotmail.com and we can have discussions, we can arrange a Zoom call, but that's the best way to contact me. But yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so much for joining us if you like what you hear I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review I know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care on Instagram at THC Primary Care and on LinkedIn just look for Tara Humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do it's really really funny you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.